0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is time for a Tech Stuff classic episode. This episode is the part two to last week's part one, the Electronic Arts Story Part Two. It originally published on May 28th, 2013, which is Interesting, because the previous one published on May 27th, which means these published back to back. I must have missed a day or something, but uh, I'm not going to miss a beat because we're going to pick up where we left off and continue the electronic arts story. Let's listen in. One thing I didn't mention at the end of the last podcast was that was the year EA purchased Origin Systems, and that's the game company that was founded by Richard Garriott, the guy who created the Ultima series. And uh, they also had other series. They had uh, Jane's Combat Simulators. They also had um, uh, the Wing Commander series. And so that was a big move on their part. But then we move on into 1993, and that's when the 3DO console actually hit the market. Right. Right. Uh, and then EA also released the first uh, Need for Speed for the 3DO uh, because EA was actually a partner in that 3DO console experiment. They were not the whole owners of that, which I guess in retrospect, I'm sure the company thinks is a good thing, <laughs> right. but they were partners. So it wasn't like Hawkins had severed all ties once he left EA. Uh, now, again, we're not going to mention every single release that electronics arts had, um, or electronic arts, I should say, had throughout their history.
1: That because would be a lot.
0: It would be ridiculous. And you'd also get tired of hearing us say FIFA, uh, like the 30th or 40th time we say FIFA. You just, that word, first of all, I didn't, if you're in the United States, you're probably thinking, I don't know what that means. And uh, even if you're not, after you've heard it that many times, it starts to lose all meaning and becomes something of a cone that we're just saying over and over to achieve enlightenment. But, uh, so I, I don't have anything for, for 94. Lauren, do you? I, I don't want to skip over you if you've got anything.
1: Uh, that was, that was actually the year that Hawkins resigned as chairman of the board for EA.
0: Ah, okay. So now he had actually not just left as the CEO, but also left the board of directors. Right. Uh, in 95, EA acquired a company called Bullfrog, which was a, a, a game development studio in the United Kingdom. And they were known for a couple of different series, their theme park series, and uh, their series called Populous. Uh, did you ever see Populous, Lauren?
1: I did not see Populous. I did play uh, some of the theme parks. But... Okay.
0: Well, Populous was a game where it put you in the role essentially as as like a, a god, and it was your job to try and shape landscape so that right, people could yeah, build yeah. stuff and, and worship you.
1: Right, yeah, this, this is what, um, yeah, indeed. I, I, was, I was about to, to say that this is what, uh, I think black and white because that was the same studio Black, later
0: on. Black and but... white definitely was was something that was inspired by the Populous mm-hmm. games. You could definitely tell that uh, Populous yeah. was was not quite as sophisticated as that. And sure. you know there were uh, there were different ways of winning Populous. You you had uh, opponents that would also have their own worshippers, and you were trying to uh, dominate the world. So if you wanted to, you could go over to the your opponent's side when your opponent wasn't looking and, and start digging down until all of the villages were submerged in water and all the little villagers drowned. And it was uh both entertaining and horrifying at the same time. <laughs>
1: Uh, all of these series by the way were, were series that EA had published and so um so the acquisition of Bullfrog was kind of a, a good following step since they had done pretty well
0: right yeah now now EA has decided that they want this as an actual part of their development team not just a a a, a title that they publish uh once Bullfrog joined EA they the division began to develop the Dungeon Keeper series which uh reached some acclaim i thought it, i always thought it was a very entertaining series uh and that same year In ninety-five, the Sega Saturn platform launches, and so does a platform that would become one of the most disruptive platforms in video game console history. Because at this point, Nintendo is pretty much the heavy hitter. I mean, Nintendo is owning video game consoles. Sega keeps coming out with uh, consoles that, uh, from a specs perspective might beat out whatever the Nintendo console is at that time,
1: but. But it... just, but just the, the, the games, the programming that was going on for Nintendo was incredible.
0: Right, yeah. And Nintendo had all the momentum. So Sega, while it had its fans, just didn't have nearly as many as Nintendo did. Well, 95 was also when we saw Sony get into the game with the PlayStation console, and that really shook things up. You know, a CD-based uh, console that w- had far more graphic ability than the Nintendo consoles did. Uh, and that that gave EA a lot of opportunities as well to develop for yet another platform. Because remember, EA wants there to be as many platforms as possible because it means that no single platform has enough power to tell EA what to do. Absolutely. Um, and then EA also starts to port several 3DO titles to the Sega, Saturn, and Sony PlayStation platforms in order to take advantage of the 32-bit processing power. So in this sense, they didn't have to develop new titles. They just had to... Retool these titles for the 3DO so that they would work on these other systems. Now, I say just, that's still a pretty big thing to have to do, but it does, it's different from having to build a game from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to go through the whole conceptual phase at all. Uh, I don't have anything for 96, so we're gonna go right into 97. Sounds good. So, EA in 97 acquires Maxis. And this is this is a big one, folks, because this is the company that was responsible for Sim City. The first Sim City game came out in 1989, so almost a decade earlier.
1: Right, and uh, and since then, Will Wright, uh, who is who's the designer for Maxis, had had been making all kinds of all kinds of related titles: uh, Sim Earth, Sim Ant.
0: Yeah, I was a big
1: fan of Sim Ant. Yeah, yeah, on the on the SNES, it was uh, it was great Ant simulation. Man, I got I. <laughs> It sounds so goofy, and I had so much fun playing it.
0: I'm not going to argue with the goofy part, but hey, I like lots of goofy stuff, so I I am not one to talk. And once EA acquires Maxis, that's when Will Wright starts to work on a game that would become an important part of EA's arsenal. In fact, you could argue it's the most important game that EA ever came out with, and that is The Sims. So... Will Wright starts to work on The Sims back in 97. It would be a few years before that game would come out. Uh, EA also gets into the online gaming market. Uh, They launch Ultima Online, which is one of the earliest, at least one of the earliest successful massively multiplayer online role-playing games in the Western Hemisphere. So Ultima Online goes live and starts to... Prove the model that online gaming could be a thing. Keeping in mind, this is before broadband penetration had really spread out throughout the United States. Uh, there were people who were playing this on dial-ups. And, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, uh, it was, you know, this was the earliest days of that, and it was before really, it, it, in those days, it, w- it came down to Ultima Online or EverQuest. Those were the two big names. And it mm-hmm. wouldn't be until, uh, World of Warcraft that, that, Dynamic gets really shaken up. Um, and you had people who were hardcore fans of one and hated the other. Uh, anyway, at that same year, 97, uh, Bullfrog Chief Peter Molyneux leaves EA to start a new studio. And supposedly, one of the reasons he left was that he felt that EA was getting too hands on in game development, that they were interfering too much in the actual development of games uh and that he felt that uh the the pressure was to establish a game and then just churn out sequels
1: right right and this is in um is in direct opposition to EA's original mode of operation wherein they were they were treating game developers with extreme respect and and kind of letting them do whatever they wanted on the principle that whatever they wanted would be awesome yeah and yeah, yeah and but but since then had as we discussed in our previous episode decided that um that yeah the the, the real way to go was to create brands and and really um Right. push push the brand find
0: find a brand that resonates with an audience and then all you have to do is keep on creating uh, uh sequels to that and uh, and people will buy it because you've established an audience for it this is not an unusual idea we see it all across video games i mean you could think And of, other media too. Of course yeah you can think of dozens of franchises that exist only in you can look at entries to various franchises where you think this really didn't live up to what the original was, or what later uh, entries were, this was clearly something where a company was trying to cash in on a previously existing title, um, and and in some cases it's it can be the death of a franchise sure. or or even a, an entire company. Well, then moving on, uh, in 1998, Electronic Arts moves its headquarters from San Mateo to Redwood City, and EA also. Acquires yet another company, uh, Westwood Studios, which was the company that developed the Command and Conquer series, which are real time strategy games. Um, I'm terrible at real time strategy games. I mean, I'm just, I, I can't.
1: Oh, I, don't, I don't have a brain for them either. That's, I can't, I can't manage. I don't have
0: the patience. Yeah. I, I cannot manage that many assets. I, I, I can't keep track of everything obviously if i were going up against kirk and spock they would be able to defeat me because i can't think (laughs) three-dimensionally
1: also in 1998 um uh, electronic arts formed a partnership with square being the japanese game company that's that's most famous for for rpgs like say final fantasy you might have heard of it yeah um and uh, uh square and and ea worked out this deal they formed a square EA here in the States, and EA square over in Japan, uh, the idea being to transfer titles that were happening in each place to the other and and see see how they did, you know, try, try to bring stuff that wasn't being seen in each country over to the other.
0: Right. Because um, there were, I, I think, especially in the Final Fantasy series, if I'm not mistaken, there were a couple of entries in the final fantasy series that happened in japan that at that point had never been seen in the united
1: states correct and uh... and and people were you know RPGs had a little bit of a cult following over here but but none of the really big cool titles were coming over and so and so
0: so it meant that you had to have like a a japanese game console and then you had to import the the titles because of course the the media for the japanese consoles would not work on the United States, it literally versions. would
1: not play. Correct. I mean, right. you know, aside from the fact that you would have to learn Japanese in order to play them very effectively, right, which right. is a whole other issue. But um, but yeah. So so each uh, Square EA and EA Square each had a thirty percent stake in the other, um, which which is a interesting fun business model. And uh, and that same year they brought um Bushido Blade Two, Parasite Eve, uh and Xenogears all to the American market for the PlayStation.
0: Huh. Wow. So another big move on EA's part. Also uh, kind of interesting to see a an alliance in the video game world. Uh, some people would call that uh, frightening because, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about yeah. being such a big power player and you already have a reputation for scooping up smaller companies and then to make an alliance with another big company, just that starts to make other people feel really nervous. Kind of nervous, yeah. In 1999, seven years after EA had uh, acquired Origin Systems, Richard Garriott, who was the founder of Origin, leaves EA. He had finished work on Ultima 9, which was the final uh, uh, entry into the Ultima series besides the online stuff, and uh, uh, he also seems to feel very similar to the way other people who departed EA felt that that it was just it was not the most ideal creative environment
1: right apparently a bunch of his uh former team members of former ultima team members felt very much the same way because after ea canceled ultima online 2 um at the time a bunch a bunch of them jumped ship to go join garriott at the new company that that he had formed destination games
0: yeah uh garriott would not see very much success here in the united states over the next several years. Uh, But uh, recently, interesting thing is that he had a Kickstarter campaign for a new game that is inspired by his old Ultima series, and the Kickstarter funded in like two days. It was uh, And and then went on to meet lots and lots of stretch goals. Uh, Anyway, back to EA, still in 1999, they published their first Medal of Honor game, which is, again, another one of those big franchises that... Uh, that they're very well known for, and that debuted on the PlayStation platform. Uh, And that same year, Sega debuts a new video game console called the Dreamcast.
1: Oh, the Dreamcast.
0: I own a Dreamcast. Aw. I like it a lot. I, I actually got my Dreamcast after the Dreamcast had already run its course and was no longer in production uh, and I inherited a lot of games from a friend of mine who was, you know, not really playing them anymore. And uh, you know, I think Dreamcast is another one of those things where we've done an episode of, or about Sega. We did a, a full thing about Sega's uh, uh, successes and its its notable failures. And it's interesting. Again, the Dreamcast was one of those consoles that was phenomenal. Uh, it performed really well, particularly if you stacked it up against its competitors. But it just, you know, it just never. It, it never, never really caught on. It never caught on to the to the extent that it needed to in order for it to right, be a right. viable platform.
1: I, th- I think it was a little bit niche for, for, the, for the mainstream American market it at really the time, was. especially. Um, uh, also that year was when Square EA put out the Final Fantasy Anthology, which brought some of those games that had not been published yet in America over here.
0: Wow. So, so in, in 2000, that's when The Sims debuts. And it is a huge success. And it, it really gave... Uh, EA, a access to a, a brand new audience, which we usually refer to as women. Uh, it turned out, it turned out that they didn't know at the time. When they were producing The Sims, they had no idea that it was going to resonate with a female audience. Right. And in fact, when they were first building The Sims, it was just going to be a, uh, a, a way of building homes. And then they created these little virtual characters to inhabit the homes and realized that it was way more interesting to see what the virtual characters were up to than to build out the houses. Yeah. So that's when The Sims' focus shifted to these virtual people, and your job was to give them as much of a life as you possibly could, which – Became increasingly difficult in the game where you're thinking, I don't have enough time. That's just like real life. I don't have enough hours to give this person a good job and a, and, and a satisfying social life and uh-huh. still have them go to the bathroom without having a, a terrible accident <laughs> in the middle of the living room. But, uh, uh, anyway, it was a huge performer and they immediately started to, to develop expansion packs for The Sims and also go into development for the sequels to The Sims because I mean, it was clear they had touched a nerve. And that's also the year, in 2000, that's when Sony launched the PlayStation 2.
1: Yeah. Um, I, meanwhile, back on the PlayStation 1, Square EA put out Chrono Cross that year, which is my the only RPG that I have ever played all the way through. I'm not really an RPG person. I love that game with a burning and fiery passion. It is it is the best. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think that it's interesting that, uh, I mean, although it had been out already in Japan, I think... Uh, you know, they they were like, no, that's PlayStation 2, whatever. This one's fine on the PS. It'll still sell really well, because well, it
0: did. And Sony was very good about uh, supporting their old consoles, even when they're introducing a new one. Yeah. PlayStation 2, games were developed for the PlayStation 2 well after PlayStation 3 debuted. So mm-hmm. um, they they have a very different uh, strategy compared to say Microsoft. And speaking of Microsoft in 2001, that's when Microsoft launched the Xbox. So now we have even more competition in the video game console world. Uh, at this point, EA is just having kittens. Uh, Nintendo launched the GameCube and, uh, EA starts to develop games for all the three major console platforms, which of course does not include Sega. Sad trombone. Yeah. So Xbox, PlayStation two and GameCube are all, uh, great platforms for ea to develop for they just they see that as endless opportunity so uh they then that same year closed the bullfrog division of ea now this this kind of brings us to another thing that people have criticized ea for not just the fact that they bought up companies but that they would later go on to close them when they realized that they weren't Performing
1: Uh, quite as well as they wanted
0: them to. Yeah, just things weren't working out. And a lot of the people who worked for these divisions came out and said, well, the reason things didn't work out is because they were so uh, adamant on us producing a brand and just concentrating on that brand as opposed to letting us develop do what we do, which is develop games. And so uh, you have this series of stories of all these different divisions being, or different companies, rather, being bought up and turned into divisions for EA, later getting closed – Um, that, you know, some would say that all EA was really doing was buying up competition and shutting it down. Yeah. You know, that, that ultimately that's what turned out to be the case.
1: Uh, oh, yeah. Whether or not it was intentional right. is, is absolutely, you know. Yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's completely beside the point. It didn't matter if it was intentional or not. That was the effect, right? So uh, <laughs> it was, it was kind of rough. Uh, and around that same time, EA starts to make licensing agreements to make games based on films and other properties. Uh, these included big name properties like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, The Godfather, and James Bond.
1: Uh, uh, I, I think that f- that fits in really well with their strategy of, of latching onto brands and not necessarily producing the best games, because a lot of those titles, especially in those early days, were not not playable. I mean, and, and that's that goes back all the way, you know, yeah, and, and any film title game yeah, is kind yeah. of spotty. There, there are a lot
0: of but, times where I feel like like companies rely very heavily on the name of the the franchise to sell copies. And so, therefore, the amount of time and effort you need to go in and build a very compelling game sometimes slips through the cracks. So, um, you know, in that case, you end up getting these games that are based on these beloved franchises, but they fail to really live up to gamer expectations. Mm-hmm. This happens, I mean, you can spend hours naming all the superhero games that just didn't live up to expectations. Not... There are a few that have been phenomenal, but there are way more that weren't. Mm -hmm. So it's Um, not a a problem that only EA possesses.
1: (laughs) Certainly, certainly not. Uh, Also in 2001, I should put in that um, Square EA put out Final Fantasy X. So that was was one of those.
0: I remember seeing the previews for Final Fantasy X when that was coming out and thinking that that looked like a particularly uh, beautiful game at that time. But... Things have changed. <laughs> it doesn't. Um, things that were once the most gorgeous thing you could imagine have uh, not necessarily aged well. Do you have anything for two thousand
1: two? I do not.
0: Excellent. Two thousand three, EA shuts down Westwood Studios and moves all the remaining staff to EA's Los Angeles studio. They, the e, uh, Westwood was in Las Vegas, and so they shut that one down. So there's another example. They did not keep everybody. They laid off. Quite a few people, but the people who did remain were then moved to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in
1: 2004. Wait. uh, Okay, sorry, sorry.
0: Lord, I I didn't see your high sign. My bad. (laughs)
1: We have we have an intricate system of hand signals going yeah. on in the background here. Uh, no, two thousand three, uh, uh, Square decided um, that it, their their relationship with EA had been slightly degrading. and also they had been um, flirting a little bit with uh, with Enix Studios over in Japan, and uh, and so Square dissolved their relationship with EA, um, bought back all of their shares, and formed Square Enix, ah, which okay. would continue to produce the rest of the the series that,
0: that people they were known for. that they were known for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I mean, excellent for them, not so great for EA necessarily. Right. Uh in 2004 EA went ahead and dissolved the Origin Systems division. So that was the ultim- the the division that produced the Ultima games. That one was uh formally no more as of 2004. Uh EA also acquired Criterion, which was the de- that was the company that had developed the Burnout games. Uh anyone who's familiar with those, the driving games that get really super crazy. Oh right, yeah. Uh, I really love those games. I'm not a big uh, driving game kind of guy, but those particular—they're very arcadey. So, uh, yeah, yeah. But, they, uh,
1: they're, they're a little bit less focused on the physicalities of driving, and so if you're not a huge car buff, the Burnout series is pretty fun because right, it's yeah. all the crashing parts that yeah, some exactly. other games don't let you do. Yeah,
0: the crashing <laughs> parts are pretty pretty spectacular and play a large part in most of those games. Uh, and then there—that was the same year that someone on LiveJournal who had the handle EA Spouse posted a rather uh, critical post about EA saying that they had some uh, draconian practices as far as employment goes, that people were being forced to work super long hours, uh, six days out of the week. They weren't getting compensated for overtime. Oh, wow. Um, there were a lot of pretty ugly uh, uh, accusations. And eventually some... Uh, some spouses and some employees of EA got together and they filed a class action lawsuit. In fact, a few class action lawsuits against EA. And that ended up leading to massive changes in EA and in the industry in general, because other companies saw what was happening and they thought, we better fix this before it (laughs) happens to us. So uh, in 2006, EA settled a lawsuit that was brought against it by a bunch of graphic artists and awarded the graphic artists $15.6 million in unpaid overtime. Wow. And in 2007, the court awarded plaintiffs of a class action lawsuit $14.9 million in unpaid overtime. So these, this is a different group. It's not the same one twice. So, uh, yeah, that was a big deal. And obviously EA did not want to court any more Problems down the line, and so they started to really take a look. Overhaul at those. their yeah. systems, yeah. Uh, and in 2005, uh, EA purchased Jamdat Mobile. So 2005, this is before the iPhone comes out. EA makes its first move into the mobile gaming world uh, for for phones, well, not not uh-huh. not mobile devices like Game Boy or whatever. You know, it had been developing games for platforms like that for a while, mm-hmm. but this was the first time it started to really look into using um cell phones not even smartphones yet as a potential gaming platform and uh and that was a smart move i mean we're seeing more and more that mobile devices are making a huge impact on the gaming industry so that was a uh whoever was the person who said we should do this was
1: yeah could really, have them they were yeah. really
0: looking ahead and that's also the year 2005 would be the year when microsoft launched the xbox 360 We'll be right back with more on the electronic arts story. But first, let's take a quick break. All right. So let's see. I think, uh, according to my notes, we left off in 2005. So 2006, EA acquires Mythic Entertainment. Uh, Mythic Entertainment was responsible for the RPG, the MMORPG, Dark Age of Camelot, that debuted back in 2001. So now EA has decided to acquire another MMORPG. They saw that as a way of of uh, maintaining a steady stream of revenue. You've got all these people who are subscribing. Mm-hmm. So that was the strategy there. Uh, and that was the year that EA also acquired Digital Illusions CE, better known as DICE. And DICE is the company that made uh, Battlefield 1942. So 2006 is also the year that Sony launched the PlayStation 3. And And Nintendo launched the Wii. Exactly. Both of them one year behind the Xbox 360, which had had a head start. Uh, And, uh, well, not a full year, but several months behind anyway. But also, what I thought was interesting was I found a, a statistic here. Uh, from Bloomberg Business Week that said it, w- it was an article that was published in 2006. So that's why I put it here, because we're talking about 2006 here. They said that from 1991 until present day, which at that time was 2006, EA averaged about 1.2 acquisitions per year. It was buying up more than a company per year if you average it out over those years. And that one third of the companies that it purchased, it had eventually shut down. Wow. So hmm. that's, again, showing that that kind of trend that I talked about earlier, the criticism that people have laid against it, saying you're buying up these companies. And when you are uh, mismanaging
1: them and, and yeah, yeah, you
0: strip the industry of the talent mm-hmm. these people have, and then you end up closing it down when it doesn't meet whatever your performance measurements right. are.
1: It's certainly not to say that those people didn't go on to do other things, yeah. but. But, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and, and it's not no. necessarily it's not necessarily the the good business model for anyone in the industry. Right. PA or and, anyone else.
0: And a big criticism would be those those guys and those men and women could have been developing games during that time mm-hmm. that would have potentially changed the industry. But they couldn't because they were
1: under contract, under contract
0: or yeah. part part of this larger organization where they had nowhere else to go at that point. Um, yeah. I mean, it's. It, from from EA's perspective, it's doing all the smart business moves. Uh, so they're from a gamer's perspective or an industry analyst's perspective, they might say this is not good for the industry, or the gamer might say this isn't good for me because I'm not getting great games out of it. EA's point of view is that this is
1: I'm making so, money.
0: Yeah, it's solidifying my position.
1: Yay, money. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, money is the yay when you're a business. Turns out, um, who knew. Yeah, yeah. I, I know this isn't financial stuff, so I didn't mean to blow your minds there about how money is Okay, so two thousand seven. EA acquires BioWare. Uh Bioware made some of my favorite games of all time, still does. Uh Baldur's Gate. Mm-hmm. I love the Baldur's Gate games. But the kicking for justice. Um there's a fantastic character who has a little hamster and uh he shouts out random things when you go into battle with him and it's Endlessly entertaining. They also made Planescape Torment. They made the Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic games, KOTOR, which, again, I was a huge fan of the KOTOR games. They made Mass Effect, which uh, I've played a little bit of. I never played it all the way through, and Matt Frederick would probably hit me if he were in the room, because it's actually his copy of the game that I have, and I haven't returned it yet. (laughs) Um, that year they also acquired Pandemic Studios, which was the company that brought us Star Wars Battlefront and also the game Destroy All Humans, as well as some other titles. And that was the year that, that Probst Steps down as CEO. He had been CEO since Hawkins had left the company.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, it was supposed to be uh, more temporary than that, wasn't it? I, I, I think,
0: I believe so, but... but he, he had led the company throughout those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from 1992 to 2007 and he's still on the board, but, uh, he ends up stepping down and John Richitello, or Tiello, I guess I should say Richitello, becomes the new CEO. And he says the company's going to undergo a reorganization to address the problems they've had where they've been acquiring and trying to assimilate and then shutting down all these different companies that they've been going after over the years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, this is, this is a, an issue that all big companies have. If you acquire a company, there's always a, a, a culture shock era that, that follows it. Because unless the two companies are Practically identical. Really well
1: aligned. Yeah, that's. There's mm going
0: to be culture shock, so sometimes a company does this so quickly that they, the, there's never that period that you need to adjust and have things work out. So he was saying, let's take the time to really look at how our company is structured and make sure that it makes sense. That was his. That was his statement from the, uh, uh, the get-go when he started.
1: Right. Uh, also unrelated to that, but uh, in, in addition to the other games that they published that year, that was the year that uh, they published Harmonix's Rock Band along with MTV.
0: Huge, huge title. I mean, uh, you know, Guitar Hero had been in the years before already kind of uh, had revolutionized the idea of rhythm games on consoles, and Rock Band ended up taking that and dialing it up to eleven, as Spinal Tap would love to say. And uh, I mean, I've had a blast playing rock band, even though... Oh, I, I
1: adore, I adore the series. It's terrific.
0: Yeah, my musical talent is is pretty negligible, but I, I still, you know, any game that makes you feel like a rock star is pretty pretty cool. It is,
1: it is. And also karaoke in your own home is pretty cool. Yeah. And also uh, little cheat boxes that allow you to hook up real electronic drum sets to right, the game. Right. And actually rock out. Our, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah.
0: Pretty neat. Yeah, so we then move on into 2008, where EA has a, an attempt to acquire another big name, Take Two Interactive, which, uh, you know, gamers will recognize that it's, it's pretty famous, uh, studio. So EA made a move to acquire Take Two. Uh, Take Two turned down the initial offer that EA made. And then, uh, the negotiations kind of got a little quiet, but everyone Kept an eye on this because they were really wondering if EA was in fact going to acquire yet another company, and some people were really worried about what the fate of Take Two would be.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that part of the reason that it fell through was also that uh, the the economic crisis that year yeah hit them really hard.
0: Yeah, so EA's uh, attempt to to acquire Take Two fails, and that year the entire world entered into an economic crisis, and it affected. Lots of industries, you know, real estate being the, the big famous one in the United States, banking as well. But it also hit companies like EA. And, uh, EA ended up announcing that it was going to cut more than a thousand positions across all of its divisions, which ended up being around 10 to 11 percent of its workforce. And that the company lost over $600 million in the last quarter of 2008. Due to a combination of the economic crisis and just the fact that its game releases had not performed very well in the market at all. Um, and their their stock took a big tumble. So in August 15th of, uh, of 2008, their stock was valued at $48.24 per share. By December 26th of 2008, it had fallen to $25.32 per share. So uh, not qu- not quite Losing half its value, just under a 50% drop, but it's... But, but a whole bunch. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's terrible. And it really, what it signaled was that uh investors had lost a lot of confidence in the company now keep in mind the value of your company is based upon how many stocks are out there if you're a publicly traded company the value of your company in part at least is determined by how many stocks you have and how uh, or how many stocks are out there in the market and what their the actual value of each stock is So, you kind of multiply those two numbers together and you get a rough estimate of what the value of the company is. Well, when you lose 50% of your stock price, that means that your company is losing 50% of its value, more or less. I mean, oversimplifying, but that more or less is what it means. Well, 2008 wasn't all bad. They did come out with a game that ended up getting a lot of critical acclaim and and a lot of fans, uh, which was Dead Space. Uh, I was never a big dead space player, but I know some people who can recite everything about that game, including all the little hidden stuff that you had to find to get the backstory.
1: Right, right. Also in the negative column, uh, that was, 2008 was the year that they were hit with a class action lawsuit over the undisclosed edition of a secure ROM DRM software, along with games like Spore for the PC. And, um, and the, the lawsuit was about the fact that they had included this, 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 uh, uh, digital rights management software without telling anyone about it, that it was separate from the game software and that it was basically impossible to uninstall, even after you had uninstalled the video game.
0: Yeah. So EA was falling under the same trap that Sony did, where in an effort to try and uh, keep its intellectual property safe, it had kind of over... Well, not kind of. It overstepped
1: mm-hmm. its, uh, Yeah, Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, the, the, the point was to prevent people from um, from installing it more than, I think it was eight times, yeah 3 times 6 times it all depends a number of times
0: right right well it's one of those things where you know someone who buys the game their argument is i should be able to install this as many times as i want because you know if i buy a new computer i want to be able to transfer the stuff i own onto that computer it's not that i'm you know installing it on all my friends machines i just want to be able to play my game mm-hmm. and the other argument against that is that we don't want you to Install this on all your friends' machines.
1: Right. Uh, the, in in other DRM news that year, that was the year that um, the EA announced plans to require PC owners of of things like Mass Effect and Spore to authenticate their copies every ten days, even if they were playing the game offline. Yeah. Um. And
0: this this is this becomes a common thread in EA as well. This idea of having either a persistent internet connection or Mm -hmm. at least using the internet every now and then to, again, verify that you have a legitimate copy of the game. So not only would you have to retain whatever the disc was, you'd have to have that in your machine, you would have to then make a connection to the internet. And then the internet would make sure that that, in fact, was your registered copy, Mm -hmm. so that you could play the game you wanted, even if you were able to just move everything on the game into your computer, and it's a single player game, you still had to do that. And a and lot of players objected.
1: Yeah, yeah, especially, you know, 2008, you know, most, most people had, uh, had pretty good internet connections at that point. But, yeah, it was getting better at that it point. It was getting yeah. better, but not everyone wanted to be connected to the internet well, all the time.
0: And, and, you know, the people who bought the game pointed out that this was really a hassle for the legitimate game player and people who were pirating the game were breaking this encryption they were using keys that would allow them to bypass to auto, this, right yeah. right so that they they wouldn't they didn't have to authenticate they were yeah. playing uh pirated copies that they got for free that didn't have this DRM in it and so the players, the legitimate players who had bought the game say it s- said look you're only punishing you're us you're right. not you're not stopping piracy and you're making the game a miserable experience for the people who actually paid to play it
1: yeah uh, this ne- this never did go into effect uh, this particular bit uh, of, of drm on ea's side they, they relented pretty quickly after community feedback which was highly highly negative as yeah. you can imagine they but however
0: did not learn their lesson from it because no, they, they would not they would incorporate it again in the future yes uh 2009, EA acquires uh, Playfish, which was a developer of casual games. They they had seen how the Wii was doing, and they thought, well, let's get in on that as well. Um, they also went ahead and cut another 1,500 employees, which was about 17% of its workforce. And they shut down Pandemic Studios that year. So yet another example of them acquiring and then shutting down a company.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and ne- i I don't have anything for 2010 me neither but in 2011 uh, in the summer they acquired popcap
0: oh wow yeah another uh, uh, casual games developer mm-hmm. so uh, lots
1: of lots of mobile content all of that yeah, yeah, yeah think, they're the ones who own like bejeweled and stuff like that
0: right. Uh, they also released Star Wars The Old Republic, which was a Star Wars-based MMORPG. Uh, now we had one person ask us if we could talk more about Star Wars The Old Republic and, and why did it move from a subscription-based service to -to free-to-play with microtransactions and, and how, you know, what, what's the story of its failure? If you want to look at it in that way, uh, all right. As some, I, I actually played Star Wars: The Old Republic. I I subscribed. I was one of the subscribers. I was one of the people who got who rolled his eyes when I heard that it was going to free to play because I had actually bought a. I think I was like a twelve month subscription oh, in advance. Oh, uh, so yeah, like, so, Thanks, guys. But yeah. uh, uh, so Star Wars: The Old Republic takes place thousands of years before the events of the Star Wars movie series, um, but it puts you in either a, uh, a a Sith role or a Republic role, and uh, you have different storylines that would play out based upon the type of character you were playing. I think part of the problem was that it, even though it was an MMORPG, more frequently than not, it felt to me like a single-player game. It felt like another sequel to KOTOR, which isn't a bad thing. The KOTOR sure. games were great. I very much enjoyed them, uh, even though the second KOTOR game obviously had an entire section that was left unfinished uh, because you could see it on your map, but you couldn't get to it in uh, in the actual game. Anyway, the Old Republic felt like another sequel to that. It didn't feel as much like an MMORPG. You didn't have as many people partying up together. You didn't and going have the kind out. of
1: interactions that you would normally expect from it.
0: Not, not after the initial re- launch. Like There was a lot of interest in it very early on, but that kind of dropped off quickly and part of the problem was that people were completing the storylines for the characters very very quickly Hmm. and once you did that you didn't really have any incentive to keep playing yeah so it was just like if you had played a single-player game all the way through and then you're thinking all right well that was fun but now i want to sell this game and get uh, some money back and then i'm going to buy another new game that's kind of what people were thinking well subscribers started to drop off from this game and ea's response was that well you know, we could either pull the plug on it entirely, or we could try and switch our strategy and get more people interested in this game. Uh, but obviously, the subscription model is not really working. So, what if we drop the subscription and go to free-to-play? And instead of making money through people subscribing, we make money by selling items in the game for real money—small amounts of money, sure, so microtransactions. But um, and and you could still play it for free without buying anything, but you wouldn't have access to the entire game. There'd be sections of the game you could not get to because you would have to purchase them in order mm-hmm. to have access.
1: And all of the uh, microtransaction uh, items were the super powerful cool things with rainbows and unicorns or whatever the, you know, Star Wars equivalent of rainbows yeah, and unicorns Yeah, they're called is.
0: lightsabers. <laughs> so, uh, I realize you're not familiar with the venerable franchise known as Star Wars. Yeah,
1: no, never never seen any of those. Uh, no clue.
0: Scruffy looking nerd harder. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the That was the whole response there, was to switch over to -to free-to-play and do microtransactions. Now, this is another thing that EA has received a lot of criticism for, is the whole microtransaction approach. I can't say the word criticism either, obviously. But uh, the microtransactions are – that's another way to try and generate revenue. And if you make your game free-to-play – it may be the only way, unless you incorporate lots of advertising. And either way, most players kind of react in a negative way yeah,
1: to it. Yeah, th- that has also been something that EA has gotten a lot of flack for, is the the inclusion of kind of um, kind of annoying out there advertising in the middle of their games.
0: Right. Well, the, the disappointing performance of Star Wars may have also contributed to another dip in EA's stock prices in 2012.
1: Uh, although, uh, wait, but before we move on, just thank you, Chez, uh, our listener from Twitter, for for writing in about that. Yes, we thank you very much. Yep.
0: Yeah. And uh, we'll, we have a few more questions we will address at the end of this episode as well. Also in 2011, something else big happened to EA. EA had the uh, honor is the wrong word for it, uh, had had the unfortunate um role as lulzsec final target lulzsec being laugh out loud security was kind of a uh an offshoot of anonymous Mm -hmm. Uh, it was not necessarily related directly to anonymous uh, but it was a group of of hackers who decided that they were going to cause as much trouble as possible really for the the main reason they wanted to do it was to show that they could And uh, boy, I bet they're regretting that decision right now because as of the recording of this podcast, uh, four of them have been sentenced to between a year and two years in various uh, jails or or juvenile facilities. Wow. So yikes. I guess they weren't quite as anonymous as they thought. Uh, Anyway, they hit EA as their final target before disbanding. And uh, uh they ended up releasing the login information of thousands of people who were playing Battlefield Heroes. So uh, that was a big black eye. EA had to reset all that and send emails out to everybody saying, you know, we're, it was compromised and you need to change passwords and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in 2012, EA wins another awful uh Distinguishing feature here—they—they they were called—they—they
1: they, they were named the worst company in America by the Consumerist. Uh, th- this is a this is a thing that um, that the Consumerist does every year. They've been doing it for a while. Yeah, they, they give a
0: Golden Poo Award. Yes, they do. It's uh, very distinguished. Uh, yeah, the way it works is that they set it up like a, a a tournament bracket, and they let people vote on which company they think should progress in the bracket. And that year, EA took home the golden poo. Its final opponent was the Bank of America. Now keep in mind, this is all from reader votes. It's not, I mean, the, I think, I think the consumerist is the one that ultimately decides which ones are in the brackets, but the readers are the ones who determine which Companies progress
1: right, and this is the internet, and there are some gamers on the internet. So, so I'm sure that that is part of why EA made it that far. But, but also, I mean, 2012 was when Occupy was happening. So, so think, I mean, th- there were thousands of people on the streets protesting the actions of of corporations like Bank of America and EA. Still, still, still beat them out.
0: Yeah, uh, by uh, I think it was like close to 73% to you know 26 or something wow. like that. It was really like that, so it was. It wasn't even close. It was a <laughs> runaway. But again, it, you know, the platforms, the internet, gamers like the internet. So you know, keep that all in mind. It's kind of a. It was kind of skewed to EA, is what we're saying. Probably. Here. We've got a bit more to say about EA, and then I'll have a lot more to say about EA in a follow-up episode right after this break. So why did it win Worst Company? Well, some of the the suggestions were because it had stripped the video game industry of talent through all those acquisitions and then shutting down competitions, or uh, shutting down competing uh, studios, I should say. So they not only bought up competing studios, but then shut them down, which then meant that that talent and those games would often become inaccessible. There'd never be another one because EA would own the intellectual the property, property yeah. but not have anyone to actually develop the games anymore, or at least the people who had developed it were gone, so it would be a completely different experience. Uh, then there was also citing of the use of microtransactions, just like I said, uh, especially for any games where you already had to buy a game. And then on top of it, have microtransactions within yeah, the things
1: game. that were not free to begin with.
0: Yeah. So the idea of buying like a sixty dollar game and then having to spend more money within the game in order for it to be a satisfying experience that did not sit well with a lot of people who voted in this. Also, the one of the things they cited were the exclusivity deals that EA had made with organizations like the NFL. Now, that's a big deal. Now, for EA, it made perfect sense. That meant that they had tied up the NFL license, that they were the only company that could put out an official NFL-affiliated football game. And the same thing is true for other sports as well. They made exclusivity agreements with other sports agencies. But NFL is an, an easy example. So... EA then shuts down competition right. because no other game company can make an official NFL licensed game. They can't use the actual team player names or anything.
1: And although, you know, a, a, another football strategy game could certainly be enjoyable when you don't have that brand recognition behind it, it becomes a lot harder to market.
0: Right. I mean, why if if you're a fan of football and you want to play as your favorite football team with the, with the actual players who are on that team as your as your players? then you had to go with EA because no one else had the licensing agreement that would allow them to do that. And so that, you know, people said, like, you're essentially saying we're the only game in town.
1: Yeah, you're, you're fur- further shutting down the opportunities of other studios.
0: Right. So that was another reason why they got a lot of votes. Uh, so the tournaments came out pretty badly for EA, Uh, it showed that that EA had a real problem with public perception of the company. Um, And EA tried to kind of uh, respond to that, and and a lot of people thought that their response was lackluster. This would happen again, uh, but we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to spoil it. (laughs) But yeah, uh, that year also was when EA released Mass Effect 3, which may also have affected its standings as Worst Company in America, because as I recall... There were a lot of people who were not happy with the way that game ended.
1: Yeah. Didn't they? Didn't they? Wasn't that the one that they released a a, a different uh, ending to that you could you could download there after were, the fact? There as I were,
0: recall, there were there may have been I think there might have been, but I know there were at least three different endings that were already in the game. Right. But some people argued that the three different endings were not distinct enough. That you know you would have small details that were different, but that in the grand scheme it felt like what you had done in the series of games did didn't not
1: matter. Yeah, it defeats the entire purpose of the Mass Effect series.
0: Exactly. It felt like like while, while the whole game f- makes it feel like you are going to have this huge impact, Ultimately, if the, the differences aren't that great, then it means that, you know, what you did didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, which from an existential point of view is kind of interesting, <laughs> but from a gamer per player, uh, you know, experience, maybe not so much fun. Oh,
1: right, right. It's not called Nietzsche the game. So therefore, yeah. let's. So, so people said that they
0: felt that the game had a, what, the end game in particular had been rushed and that it just wasn't a fitting capper to it. Uh, and Penny Arcade's Ben Kuchera, and I I apologize if I'm uh, mispronouncing his name, Uh, he criticized the company for concentrating on free-to-play games and microtransactions, and he also said that the company was failing to create compelling retail games. So he's saying that the games that you are selling for $60 aren't really good. good, and the ones that are free to play with microtransactions are irritating.
1: Right. So. Uh, Penny Arcade, by the way, has 922 comics that are tagged EA in their system, which.
0: As of the recording of this podcast.
1: Yes, as of, well, yeah, as of, uh, as of Tuesday, I think actually, Tuesday or Wednesday of so, this yeah, week. May 15th. So, so there, there, there might have been more. Uh, <laughs> yeah. since, since then, but it just which just goes to show that the the gaming community has had a lot to say and a lot of cri- criticism to lob against the company over the yep. years. And
0: uh in and, and 2013, uh, John Ricciitello stepped down as CEO and as a member of the board. Uh, here's a direct quote from one of the blog posts that was written uh, that he wrote about this. He said, I am writing with some tough news. I have resigned my position as EA's CEO. I will be around for a couple of weeks, and I hope to have a, a, the chance to say goodbye to many of you. Larry Probst will be stepping in as executive chairman to help smooth the transition. Uh, EA also continued to lay off employees in part uh, as a uh, streamlining effort at this time, and so Probst comes back in. You know he had stepped down, yeah. and uh, now he was interim CEO. Uh, and uh, that's as of the recording of this podcast, that's still the case. They hadn't found a, a permanent replacement yet.
1: Yeah, but but they, yeah, that was that was another ten percent of glo- global staff that was laid off. Uh- As of May of this year.
0: So uh, tough times over at EA. They also uh, said that they planned to open a DICE LA office. Right. uh, Where where they would be developing games, including Star Wars games, because they made a deal with Disney, which, of course, acquired the rights to uh, the LucasArts stuff uh, earlier in 2013. And they won the worst company in America for the second year in a row. And most of the this reasons. Is, this is
1: the first time that any company has ever done this, by the way.
0: Yeah, done a twofer. Yeah, and uh, they they the reasons are pretty much the same as 2012. Uh, but also there was another controversy that happened uh, between those two times that ended up costing the company big time, which was the launch of SimCity Five, one of the most anticipated games in a long time. I mean, like there are certain titles that when you hear about them coming out, people old school gamers get really excited. Diablo three is a great example of a game that got a lot of people talking months before it came out. SimCity 5 is another one of those, where people who are fans of the SimCity franchise were really excited by this game. But uh, the big issue was that SimCity 5 was a game that required you to have a persistent connection to the Internet in order to play it, even if you're just playing single-player single offline. offline. It's just you and your computer, but you still had to have a persistent Internet connection. And they had some server issues when the game launched, which meant that people couldn't play the game they had just bought. They had spent the money, the game was in their hands, they wanted to play a single-player game, and they couldn't do it because the servers weren't working. Now that tells you that this is a huge problem. That's another example of why the persistent internet connection thing is an argument that people say makes for bad gaming experience. Because when you have a technical issue on the, the game provider's end... Uh, then yeah, it, it, it's
1: it's adding a completely unnecessary extra step that a lot of things can go wrong with.
0: Right. And if it's an online ro- game, then that's just the way that works. Sure. Right? Of course. But, but when it's a single player game, then people have a real hard time yeah, dealing it's, with
1: it. In, it's infuriating.
0: And, uh, you know, again, a lot of people say that the whole reason for this was just so that, uh, EA could have another kind of DRM there. That, right, that, right. You know, that's not, EA has denied that. They said that's not the reason, but that's the reason everyone say, says is, or, a lot of people suggest that's the real reason. Let me put it that way.
1: Sure. Uh, they also made headlines in February and March when, um, the CFO Blake Jorgensen announced that all future titles would involve microtransactions. Uh, he backpedaled really hard a week later. Um, yeah. But that, did,
0: that did not get a great reaction. No. <laughs> and again, that's probably what contributed to it winning the worst company in America again.
1: Yeah. Uh, despite all of this, their, their stock has been rising dramatically over the course of, of 2013 so far. Um, and, uh, really, really interestingly, as of, as of this week, the, um, a couple of the really high level people have been selling off a lot of their shares in their own company's stock, like 57,000 of their shares.
0: Wow. That is, uh, that's, I'm actually looking it up right now because it's actually a little lower than it was when I wrote it down. Cause originally we were going to record this episode the day before we we're actually recording it. Right. Right. We we're going to record it yesterday. Yes, uh, this doesn't uh, mean May, anything May, to you May, guys. May 15th. <laughs> but on May fifteenth, May fifteenth, the the stock price was at twenty two dollars and fifty cents when I looked at it originally. Uh, right now on May sixteenth at four forty four p.m. Eastern time, more mm-hmm. information than you need to know, it's at twenty two dollars and two cents. So it's dropped almost fifty cents, or right around fifty cents, uh, since I checked it uh, yesterday. So it's still, and it's obviously not at that pre August two thousand eight high when it was in the high 40s and lower 50s
1: but it's but it's dropped a great deal since then um I uh, I think I think the that well, as of as of Wednesday as of the may 15th anyway shares were shares were up very nearly 50 percent wow over the course of 2013
0: yeah so it's it's I think volatile is a safe word to use.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, that, that's, th- there's a lot of, uh, very, very important, um, financial publications that are talking about EA right now, which I, which I always find fascinating. And, yeah. and all of them are going like, be cautious. Don't actually
0: invest. We don't know about this thing. Yeah. There does seem to be a real problem with, uh, consumer confidence mm-hmm. in, and, and investor confidence in a EA. And again, that can really affect it. You know, EA is a multi-billion dollar industry, company right now. It's, it, you know, its revenues can be over a billion dollars. Uh, can be over three billion dollars in a good year, and so when you're talking about that, it's kind of weird to think that its it, its value as a company is in question. That suggests that there's been some pretty serious missteps, or that something's really funky with the industry in general.
1: Right. Right. Well, you know, it's I I think it's just basically that thing where they're not really they're not really heeding all of all of this this feedback that they're getting from. From all of their, their from their fans, yeah, and that's you know again uh, they they also just renewed their license with uh with um the the football association with a uh, fiFA fifa and oh the soccer the what? soccer so.
0: yeah, sure, football whatever <laughs> go back to france
1: um until twenty twenty two um, so well, and,
0: and FIFA is one of those titles that consistently does really well for EA. Oh so. sure, and
1: and you know again, like it's it's understandable why would they would want that exclusivity. But.
0: Yeah.
1: Now we asked our
0: listeners if they had any specific questions they would like us to address, and uh, we we've talked about some of them already, so I'm not going to go over all of them. But mm-hmm. I've got two left that we can chat about really quickly. Peter from Facebook said. What was the most popular EA game? And if you go from the debut of EA till present day and you look at all the units sold, The Sims comes out on top with 11.23 million units sold globally, according to VG Charts. And second place would go to Need for Speed Underground. Now, um, that... That doesn't surprise me because The Sims is one of those games that had a very wide appeal. I mean, I loved it when it came out. I thought this was such a cool, innovative game. Also, I thought it was funny to lock people out of the bathroom. <laughs> um, yeah, I did some pretty cruel things to, to my Sims. Good
1: good, good thing to know about you, Jonathan. That's great.
0: That's yes, how oh, well. That's why, <laughs> Uh And then Ian, he uh, asked, also on Facebook, uh, if I could give a rundown of some of the PR meltdowns that EA has had. Uh, I could but that's a full episode so I'm going to give you um I'm going to give you three examples of PR attempts that EA maybe did not handle very well Th- this isn't just like coming out and saying uh we didn't do this right we're going to do better this right. is, this is this goes beyond this this comes into marketing Mistakes. Okay? Three big marketing mistakes. Now, keep in mind that this might not be entirely EA's fault. They could have uh, uh, partnered with a marketing firm that came up with a terrible idea, and EA just ran with it. Um, one of them was when EA was marketing the game Dante's Inferno. Which,
1: oh, right. I remember that. Yeah.
0: Which had all these different characters that were based off the seven deadly sins. So... The promotion for The Sin of Lust came around at right around the same time as Comic-Con. And EA had a booth at Comic-Con where they had uh, some young ladies dressed in costume. Mm -hmm. Models. Colloquially known as booth babes Mm -hmm. to promote their games. And they had their Sin to Win campaign, which was a contest that encouraged people to, quote, Commit acts of lust, unquote, with costumed reps at EA's booth. Later on, the team clarified this as saying that they were just trying to tell people to take photos with these reps and then tweet and share them in various ways. But, the, but
1: no, that doesn't sound like that thing. That's, yeah, not, the that's committing not what that sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I uh I'm I, I remember I'd completely blocked that from my memory, but I remember exactly how offended I was by that because it was really offended, actually. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, not a great move. Okay, so here's another one. This one This one really makes me scratch my head. So they for a promotional campaign for the game Mercenaries two, EA converted a London gas station. To make it look like a military depot. So it was like a depot that you would see in the game Mercenaries 2, which is kind of cool. I mean, we've seen promotions like that, like the, uh, the Simpsons Quickie Mart type stuff.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, they, they, they had a, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, life-size Gollum dolls on London Underground for a while. Stuff yeah, like that. Cl- sure.
0: Clever stuff. So what's the big deal about converting a gas station into a military depot? Well, They had this campaign where anyone stopping at the military depot slash gas station would get seventy dollars worth of gas for free. Now keep in mind that the game doesn't cost that much, which meant that even if every single person who stopped at that gas station then went out and bought a copy of Mercenaries 2, you would still be
1: losing money. You'd
0: still be losing money, and they they ended up. Screwing up traffic patterns so badly in London once people found out they could get free gas at this station that it caused a massive traffic snarl and even ended up with government censure of EA. It cost them about $50,000 to convert the gas station into a military depot, 70 bucks of gas per person who stopped. Yeah. Not the most effective use of your marketing dollars. No. You you might argue. And here's the third one. So Godfather 2, the game is coming right. out. And EA, like many companies, tries to court the gaming press by sending out publicity kits that have various little gifts in them, right? Horse's head? No. No horse's head, no fish. Okay? No cannoli. Brass knuckles. They send out brass knuckles. Actual brass knuckles. Actual brass knuckles, which, by the way, not legal. Yeah. And also illegal to send by mail. By mail. Hmm. So then they had to send a message to everyone they had sent a package to saying, could you please send back those brass knuckles and please don't sue us. Three examples of marketing failures on EA's part. Now... There are plenty of other examples of EA coming out and apologizing or not apologizing for something. Like when they won the America's Worst Company the second time, there was a blog post that essentially said, we can do better. But it, a lot of people viewed it as kind of a backhanded slap at uh, gamers and not not like so much as owning up to problems, but rather saying, uh, you know, people perceive it as this so we can change their perception. <laughs> so uh and i'm paraphrasing obviously sure so, sure so, but
1: but nonetheless it, no they they've they've not always had the best attitude about that sort of thing or at least that, that seems to be
0: the implication anyway you know cuz we're all reading this through our own lens and perhaps the way they intended it and the way that we're interpreting it are just wildly different
1: oh absolutely and and you know and it's an understanding understandably upsetting situation to be in, um, to, to have to be the company's representative coming off of something like that. Yeah. There's, there's, However, it's you know, it's, to... it's you know, that that's the kind of thing that if, if I had to write that, I would draft it like nine and a half times and yeah. get everyone in the office to read it and make sure there was absolutely no way that it could be perceived as being negative towards right, right. the fans that I had pissed off so much to begin with. Yeah, that's fair.
0: And that wraps up this classic episode of Tech Stuff. Almost forgot the name of my own show the Electronic Arts Story Part 2. As I said, I'll have to do another part. I might even just go and do a full redo of the story from beginning to end because I do a much deeper dive these days than I did back in those days. So if you guys would like me to do that, If you have suggestions for other topics, maybe there's another company or technology or a trend or something you would love me to cover on Tech Stuff, reach out to me. The handle both at Facebook and on Twitter is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,